One of the things that I think the outside world doesn't yet understand enough about the atrocities of the 7th of October is the fact that some of the first victims were exactly the sort of people who were most pro-Palestinian, pro-Gazan, uh, believed in the idea of living side by side, helped them out. These poor families who believed in peace and, and living together, who were, who were hiring Palestinian workers to give them employment, and you remember, just before, there was another negotiation about more Palestinians coming through the Eretz crossing in order to for more people to be working inside Israel. That is gone, dead. I really do think that although some lessons have been learned very fast inside this country, outside, I do fear that people are going to be dreaming defunct dreams and, and trying to integrate totally dead delusions. And uh, if I had one message for the outside world, if we don't do that, no idea how preposterous that sounds now. I just came back from the interview with Mr. Douglas Murray. And let me tell you, it was a blast. Douglas Murray needs no introduction. Nevertheless, he is the best-selling author of many books, including The Strange Death of Europe, The Madness of Crowds, and most recently, The War on the West. He is one of the leading conservative thinkers of our time. And for me, above all, is a true friend and defender of Israel. I was very excited throughout this interview and even a little bit nervous. Without further ado, let's watch together Douglas Murray. I want to start with a question that I find very interesting. And the question is why you? You are a very unlikely defender of Israel and you are the biggest defender of Judeo-Christian values and you're not Jewish you're secular, and the elite, the British elite, are pro, are anti-Israel and secular. So how come that you are such a big defender of Israel? First of all, I, d I don't know that it's true that, well, first of all, I don't know what, what I'm, I'm sure I belong to an elite of some kind, everyone belongs to some kind of elite, and everyone is also anti-elitist, so we have to live with this. Um, I don't accept that the elites in Britain uh, are inevitably anti-Israel. I think there are some. Uh, the Labour Party, for instance, is pretty anti-Israel, though its current leader is doing quite well so far, mainly because his predecessor was an anti-Semite who uh, brought the party into great disrepute. I think our Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, has done pretty Definitely. reliably in this conflict so far in holding the line of civilized values against uh, barbarianism. Um, I, I'm sort of surprised and saddened if it is the case that it's surprising that somebody from Britain um, would be um, friendly towards Israel. But um, I can see how you might think that because, of course, the vision from outside Britain is that, you know, we have these terrible, you know, huge anti-Israel marches that make a lot of noise. Although this past weekend, we had a march of over 100,000 people in solidarity with the Jewish community in the UK. Um, so it's not all bad news, you know. Um, uh, myself, I suppose, I've always had a deep instinct about this country and its people, uh, deep appreciation for it. Uh, I don't take it for granted, and that's partly because I've traveled a lot in my life, and I've seen a lot, and so um, I know how precarious civilization is, and I therefore um, am protective of countries and societies that seek to defend civilization, and particularly when it's under threat, and it's under considerable threat, very proximate threat, um, in the country we're sitting in now. It seems to me that there is something beyond, you know, uh, protecting the civilization. I heard your speech at the London synagogue, mm. and it seems to me that there is like a deeper connection over there. I th yes. you, you you said to John Anderson that the Jewish people are a canary in the coal mine. So well, that's certainly true. Yes, it might be. It's not just you know a fight for civilization. Mm. It may be something. A little bit different or I think stronger? It, I think it is something stronger, something deeper, certainly. Um, I, 
it's very hard to analyze your own uh, motives, your own instincts. I just know that my own instincts have always been on the side of Israel against those who would wish to destroy it. And I suppose, or attack it, or even sort of lambast it. And that's because um, I do think that this country is a sort of miracle, you know, um, in a single lifespan. A, a, a person could have had a lifespan from the moment that Herzl wrote Jewish State to Israel having Jerusalem in, yes. in one lifetime. And um, that seems, among other things, a, a sign of, of the possibility of hope over defeat, of um, life over death, of... Um, of civilization over its enemies, but also more than that, I, I think that it is a. Um, I don't like the term uh, philo-Semite because it has too many con connotations of simply being the same thing as anti-Semites, but they think it's good, you yes. know. Uh, yes. So I don't, I don't see myself as a philo-Semite particularly, um, but um, I have a a deep admiration for this country and. And uh, I think deep understanding of the people who are its enemies. And a lot of people where I'm from are kind of glib about that um, or just don't understand the dangers this country has faced time and again and that the Jewish people have faced time and again. And uh, so, yes, I mean, but it's, you're right, it's... it's um, it's something that comes from here as well as here. Let me offer uh, an alternative explanation that might also explain, and it's, it's sort of a mystical explanation. And again, I heard your first lecture in Israel in the conservative, in the conservative conference. It wasn't my first lecture in Israel. One of your first. Yeah. Uh, no, I spoke here first about almost 20 years ago. Okay, yeah. so the first lecture that I, that I attended, and you, you say about... about I'm an atheist. This is what you said then, but I need to act as if I believe in God. Well, I, I'm, I'm, yes, I'm an agnostic. I was a Christian agnostic. Um, and um, yes, I follow the, the advice that Pope Benedict gave when he was still Cardinal Ratzinger. Um, uh, yes, and to behave as though God exists, even if, even if you sometimes doubt it. But that seems to me a pretty good... Yes. Halfway house. And my theory is that the origin of the new, the modern state of Israel is a biblical event. Even if you don't believe in anything, in a biblical event happening in the middle of the 20th century, mm. which brings back the oh. tiny possibility that maybe other biblical events can be relevant. Maybe the biblical, maybe the Bible is still relevant in modern time, and some of the rage that the secular intellectual people in Europe and other parts of the world say that we want to resist the idea of biblical events in the 20th century. That's possible. I mean, I do see the founding of the State of Israel as a sort of miracle, um, um, more so because, because it was so nearly snuffed out at the very beginning. I mean, uh, I was going around a new museum that's going to open some point soon uh, here in Israel, uh, just earlier today. And um, I mean, I think so few people outside this country realize how close it was in 1948. Imagine being people who lived through what those people had lived through, and then again, you have to fight to the death against people trying to destroy you. And it's unbelievable. Um, so, so maybe, yes, maybe I'm open to the belief in miracles. I think it was Ben Gurion who said that in Israel, in order to be rational, you have to believe in miracles. Yes, I think yes, it, that's right. It's a good quote. Okay, let's move on to another thing, you know, the relationship between Israel and Europe. What is Israel, according to your opinion, what is Israel doing right and what Europe do wrong? And why do you think Europe should learn from Israel and not vice versa? Because most of the mm. elite intellectual, both in Israel and in Europe, think that we should uh, learn more from Europe. You know, the English right. version of right. uh, Haaretz basically praised Angela Merkel, Barack Obama, 
and diminish all the all the native values, all the native Jewish values in Israel? Well, um, I think it was Bob Kagan who said some years ago. I mean that that um, Europe believes it lives after history. You know. Um, uh, it believes it's beyond wars, beyond conflict, beyond statehood, even uh, beyond beyond. It's it's forgotten the the essential tragedy of human existence. Um, believes that it's got past it, um, and uh, Israel doesn't have that. Um, amazing, <laughs> what can you say, it? Uh, delusion to live, uh, de oh, <laughs> if we got an interruption off camera. This is when your tech person. That's when your tech your person wife. has, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> Israel doesn't have the opportunity to live in that delusion. So if you're a um, 20 or one year old man or woman in the UK, you can believe that what matters most is your Instagram page, the way in which you present yourself to your friends and others, the uh, uh, desire to get money, accrue some capital if you can, get on the housing ladder, and, uh, and also that your society sort of owes you, and that if things are unfair, they should be addressed by the society, um, and that we can wage war on unfairness. And uh, that's why you hear Europeans saying things like, we must tackle hate. Okay. Really? How, wh what are you going to do after you've defeated hate? Are you going to go on to slow or um, gluttony or um, well, no chance of that? But, um, you know, it, it, it's this, 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 I think, a happy delusion. And Israelis at 20 and 21 are currently... In Gaza Strip. In the Gaza Strip. I, um, it's so, I mean, I just wish that Europeans learn from Israel on these things, is that, you know, um, when things are close to the boat, like, you do have to hit them back. And Europeans, like Americans, believe that it's sort of always going to go on like this. And I've never had that delusion. And, uh, I don't especially know why I haven't, but I, I just don't think I ever had that delusion, or if I did, I had it for a matter of minutes as a child. Um, but Israel lives in history, um, and Europeans, to a great extent, can't forgive Israel for that, because um, it then sees the country that lives in history as causing everyone else to have to live in history, or at risk of doing so. And that's a very... That's a very um, a problem for Israel. It gets blamed by Europeans uh, for having conflicts, for instance, for defending itself. Um, and uh, I, I mean, you know, may Europeans live in this luxury belief forever, but I suspect they won't. I, by the way, I think what you just said is some of the reasons why we don't see many Israelis believing UFOs because we don't need mm. to invent enemies outside yeah. outside Earth's enemies. We have enough enemies just around. No? And more than enough. Yeah, more than enough. And by I would like to ask you something about, you know, things that you wrote in the strange death of Europe. Yeah. The idea is that after World War II, we are not going to we are not going to extend our fight to morality to good versus evil because if we go with my beliefs all the way, then it will become Nazi Germany. And mm. you know the 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 relativism in your morality is something that is just against everything that Israel stands for. I think that the mm -hmm. Jewish concept of morality is that sometimes power can be moral. Yes, Even more moral than love. And I mm -hmm. think that this is a very clear distinction. But Europe 
Britain, Great Britain, you know, we had Churchill versus Chamberlain. Churchill believes that he fought pure evil. So how come Britain became Chamberlain again? I'm not sure if it's Chamberlain again. I just think that, that, that uh, the history of the 20th century in Europe, as I say in the strange death of Europe, the Hebrew edition I see is on the table, um, is that, um, thank you very much, show for the camera. Um, what I say there is that, is that you know, Europe almost destroyed itself and the world twice in one century, and that would weigh on anyone. And, um, you know, there's also that thing of, come on, we can't have to do this again, can we? Um, and a lot of people felt that after the First World War. I mean, one of the reasons why there's a sort of slightly unfair rap given sometimes to the some of the appeasers in the 30s and so on is that, you know, there was there was a um, and I, it was understandable that a generation that had gone through the trenches of World War One or who lost their fathers in World War One or saw a whole generation come back irreparably damaged in, in mind, body, and spirit might want to avoid this ever happening again. Remember that the First World War, then known as the Great War, was meant to be the war to end all wars, and the idea you have to do it again. Uh, so soon is something which it, of course, people wanted to resist that as an idea, and um, I don't doubt that Israelis have the same thing again. We've got to do this, but yes, yes, it's, it's, alas, it's not a choice. Another thing that I think it differentiates the Jewish culture from both Islamic culture and Christian culture: the idea of asking questions. The idea of free speech that is inherently in the culture. We, we don't ask questions in Christianity. We are not allowed to ask questions in Islam. And maybe this is one of the things that, you know, that is profoundly different in Israel versus you today because... I don't know. I think Christian culture certainly asks questions. I agree that Islamic culture, culture yeah, the nature of Islamic culture is, is, yeah. is submission to Allah. So, I mean, of course, that's, and, and, you know, inshallah, which is, of course, the most the soporific idea ever, which is whatever is effectively. <laughs> um, but, I mean, I know, I, I mean, I don't agree that there's a sort of theological explanation for it particularly, because I do see Israeli culture and European cultures, Western cultures being very similar, um, but at different speeds, you might say, you know, similar societies traveling at different speeds. And a European society wants to continue to drive uh, below the speed limit. And Israeli society doesn't have that option. Okay. And what can we do? What can we do in, in order to help the European society, you know, to push the I mean, I don't know if it's Israel's job to do that. Israel's job is to look after Israel. The Israeli government's job is to look after the Israeli people. But is that of your job as the most most prominent conservative journalist in the UK? Well, I see my job as simply telling the truth as I see it uh, um, and writing about what I see and being as uh, accurate in my analysis as possible. Um, um, I would love... Europeans to be more aware of the fact that what they're living in is a kind of holiday from reality. But um, it's more likely that events will wake them up to that fact than my writing, sad to say. Um, I wrote The Strange Death of Europe uh, seven years ago now, came out six years ago. And uh, since all my warnings, as far as I can see, with the exception of a small number of countries in Europe, um, everyone else um, put their foot on the accelerator of things like uh, immigration, mass immigration, illegal immigration. Instead of strengthening their borders, they weakened them even more. Instead of strengthening their civil societies, they made them even weaker. And um, But that, well, that, that, as I've always said, will differ country by country. Um, and some countries might be in a position to save themselves from becoming completely relativistic and others will not. Let's move on to the idea again to the canary in in the coal mine. And again, the canary and the people in the coal mine share one specific thing, which is oxygen. And in this analogy, 
the Jews being the canary in the coal mine are the Judeo-Christian values? Um, yes, but also um, all the things that come from that that most people think are like oxygen. I mean, um, you know, it is the case, I'm afraid, that modern Western man um, does regard things like rights as being as a fish believes water is. Sort of, of course I'm surrounded by this. If my rights are affected or trampled on, I'll demand more rights. Um, that's uh, the idea that, I mean, it seems to me that the, one of the central insights of conservatism in its true sense, and small c conservative sense, is the simple knowledge that everything can go wrong, everything can be different. Um, everything you love can be trampled upon. And without any necessary divine or other intervention, um, I mean, imagine what it was like for Catholics in the 16th century to see their monasteries despoiled. Um, they probably thought God would strike down their enemies at some point, and just he didn't. Um, and it's, it's very important for people, to my mind, to realize that, that, that the, the, the line between civilization and barbarism, between a society in which your rights are protected and which you can even moan about rights and anyone even cares, and a society in which people can just go around chopping people's heads off, is, 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 is it's very thin. It's, it's, very, it's much thinner than people like to think. And, um, and they should think about that more because if they did, they'd be more. I mean, they'd, they'd have more gratitude towards their societies, which, as I say in my most recent book, *The War on the West*, is that we we live in societies in the West of resentment, resentfulness, of of forever saying what's not given to us, what we don't have, and demanding that somebody give it to us. And in actual fact, I mean, I'd like to see our societies transforming more into societies of gratitude. Actually, what we have is, is pretty darn wonderful. It's pretty amazing. And at the very least, it's a pretty good thing to build on. Um, or at least don't pass it on worse. Um, these are very basic presumptions and assumptions for society. But, but yes, I think they, should, they come from... I mean, to put the other side of it, I mean, there are plenty of people, you meet grown-ups, who think, that the world is just meant to get better and better. I mean, you meet them all the time. They're actually walking, talking beings. Uh, I don't understand how you can leave the house in the morning being so ignorant. I mean, it's self-evident that society can get better in certain ways and then can completely burn itself down. Um, my friends who were in Iran in the 60s and 70s, 50s even, did not imagine that the world then you would fall apart completely. And, and very rapidly. Very rapidly. So, it, it, by the way, you know, in Jewish culture, we don't speak about rights, we speak about obligations, which is mm -hmm. an entire, yes. profoundly different uh, yeah. way to treat reality. Yes. This is not you, you have no rights, you have only obligations. Well, the way, the way that that used to be framed was that rights come with responsibilities, but we dropped the responsibilities bit. I hear you talking and I can, I have Neil Ferguson on my mind that, you know, the West has done so many beautiful and good things to mm -hmm. humanity. And this is one thing that we need to cherish. And it seems that, it seems that in the battle of ideas, what in, in your perspective, like one or two of the most valuable things that we need to cherish from the Western culture and fight for the well. You need free to, speech will be almost well, one of free, them. yeah. Free speech is one of them, obviously. But I mean, these are all instruments down the line from the original thing, which is you need to know where you came from. Uh, and if Westerners forget where they came from, then um, well, I mean, all they, all you're doing is sawing off the, the branch of a tree that you're sitting on. And um, so that's the first thing. I mean. Um, Education in most Western countries, particularly in America, I have to say, is so appalling these days that very few people know anything. 
it seems to me, um, even about the founding of their own country. Basic hot historical literacy is unbelievably poor. Um, the only thing anyone knows about history is the Nazis, and they know that Hitler was bad, and therefore don't be Hitler. But unfortunately, even that is not a strong enough historical, it's not a strong enough moral lesson. So a German leftists of the 50s who knew as one thing, don't do what our parents did, and who ended up joining up with the PLO and sifting out Jews on hijacked planes. I would suggest that the people today marching through the streets, believing they're being not Hitler, if they got the dream of uh, or what they shout and scream about from the river to the sea, the, the river being a river that they couldn't name and the sea being one they couldn't point to on a map. But nevertheless, if they got their wish, they would have the Juden-Rhein uh, um, land, uh, which Hamas and Fatah, the PA, want to be clear of Jews. And therefore, in the name of being anti-Hitler, they would fulfill Hitler's dream. There is a book called The Dumbest Generation. And in this book, Good title. it presents, uh, don't trust anyone below 30. This is the second title. And in, in this It's slightly book, unfair because there are lots of smart people in there. Okay, okay. But you have to have thought your way through it, is the point. Yeah, yeah, no. You have to have thought your way it through was, it. It was a, a slogan against don't trust anyone above 40. Uh, oh, yeah. oh, yeah. Well, the boomers. Yes. So anyway, he, he, showed, uh, he showed the poll that most U.S. Uh, youngsters think that uh, the U.S. was fighting Russia in World War II. Because now they are uh, not friends, so it probably went back. But when you say we need <laughs> to know where we came from, God. is it only you know before it was worse than it it is now? But maybe some, but in a secular materialistic frame of education or ideology or society, it is very it is very hard to defend values such as free speech and such as you know the the goal to uh, your ability to pursue your goals etc etc because those things are coming or stems from some transcendental values um well i mean yes i i, I don't particularly care for the summing up of a society like britain where i was born I don't particularly care for the summing up of it as being about free speech and rights. Like, that's a component, but that's not the point of Britain. Um, the point of Britain is a whole slew of things. And British culture is very different even from the nearest culture in, say, the Netherlands or um, France. But every culture, and this is a big problem always for conservatives, is that leftists tend to always demand the same things everywhere they are, um, whereas conservatives are always conserving something different everywhere they are. Um, but in the UK, in Britain, for instance, you know, we, we're conserving, I'd like us to conserve, a very specific culture, which is reflected in the institutions, the great institutions of the country, but also in its in its music, in its culture, in its literature, in its art, in its religion, in its rather peculiar religious inheritance. But then who doesn't have a peculiar religious inheritance? Um, but I would like to see that preserved. Uh, so when people, we had a sort of breakdown in the last 20 years in the UK of mainly very second-rate thinkers saying things like, "What? who are we? What are we? And they always came away with these attempts like there was like there was like they were wearing intellectual mittens, you know, they yes. couldn't grasp at anything. Very superficial things like, well, being British about you know um, fair play or something. As I've often pointed out, even the Saudis don't say that they believe in unfair play. Um, so it, it was very superficial, and really, in part, that's inevitable because if you were to say to an individual, explain to me in totality who you are. It's difficult. Yes. It would be difficult. And if you kept asking the person for a long time, you could drive them to a breakdown. I think it's the same with societies. It's rather difficult, actually, to say what it exactly it is, for instance, that divides 
that differentiates Swedish culture from Norwegian culture. Um, an outsider might think that any such differences are impossible to determine, but they're there. Swedish, Norwegian, it looks the same to me. At this part of the interview, I was so excited that I forgot to ask you, please subscribe to the channel and support us on Patreon. You will also notice that in the following 10 minutes, there is a slight technical audio problem. Had we received more support on Patreon, this would probably have never happened. Nevertheless, with a slight technical problem in the audio, let's hear what Douglas Murray has to say regarding the real question about self-definition. And so this whole thing of sort of who are we, what are we, um, in, in part is sort of the wrong question. Um, it shouldn't, the question should be how do we continue to be what we are that's good? Um, and, and what are your metrics for being good? Yes. What are your objective metrics, which sometimes are very hard to determine? Well, one would be if you're a force for good in the world. And one of the reasons why Britain had lost a certain amount of self-confidence in recent years, and British public have, is because it's been hammered out of by malevolent actors who tell them they've never, never done anything good as a country. Fortunately, there are enough sensible people who are not in the sort of elite who still hold on to the the, the, the true belief that we've broadly been a, a force for good in the world. Um, then it's the same with America. I mean, America in the last generation has had its sense of itself beaten out of itself. Um, same thing with, with Australia. Um, I was speaking with an Australian uh, friend yesterday who was saying you know, that um, in our own lifetimes, the, the happy country has been transformed into the unhappy country, the uh, the country where uh, the sort of, you know, no nonsense uh, has been turned into a country of complete nonsense where people are forever being told to apologize for things they have nothing to do with. You know, among some other things, Stephen Hicks in explaining postmodernism, I think, nails it down. Uh, ever since the Renaissance, the focus was the individual. But in order to pursue happiness, the focal point must be outside yourself. And it is very hard in a materialistic world. And yes, because the pursuit of happiness in pure, purely materialistic terms is yeah. how much stuff can I get? Yeah. Which, of course, is... By the way, Aristotle, when he discussed happiness, he didn't mean it in the same way that we mean it today. How do you fulfill your role as a human being the same way this cup fulfills its role as a cup? Well, one thing is, of course, is to have an idea in your mind as an individual of what the life is would like to live or make it meaningful that meant that when you were dying, you didn't feel like you wasted your time. Which isn't to say that everyone, you know, nobody has regrets, but I mean, at least, you know, you would feel that you, you or know that you'd live the life you were meant to live. Um, for, for you to be able to do that, you have to have a concept of a life come out there. Because it suggests that some ways are good and some ways are not good. Well, that's also one of my um, objections to, to the claim. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, written a lot about free speech and uh, on the war of the Free Speech Union in the UK, and we're proud of. Um, it's a great free speech population, but I, I don't see free speech as being a pursuit in itself. I mean, the, the point of free speech is not to just have free speech, but to do something. And the doing something about it, in my mind, is like freedom of writing or freedom of publishing, is to pursue truth. Um, what's the point of that? It's because if you believe in the truth exists in the world, then it's something you should try to get to. Why shouldn't you try to get to it? In order to get to the purpose of things, the essence of things, yet of things. That's the point. I think... This was, I think, the biggest reason why you were so pissed off with Norman Finkelstein. You know, the idea that people denied what happened in Berry, the massacre at the Reim party at the Nova Festival. I came to pursue the truth. I was at the Shura Hospital and I saw everything. And then you say people don't want to hear, don't want to absorb the truth for unethical reasons. 
Yes, I mean, I was uh, uh, upset to hear what Finkelstein had to say, partly because I thought that he was gone. I mean, his career was so destroyed when so, 20 years ago that uh, watching his vague return is, is like watching an act of necromancy. It's extraordinary to the end of the view. Um, and yes, I mean, here's a man who wrote on the 7th of October, so this glorious day that been written in the stars um, and uh, claimed that the citizens of Gaza had broken out of a concentration camp. And firstly, of course, anyone who did manage to break out of concentration camps in the 40s did not immediately go next door and behead as many babies as they could, you'll measure it. Um, and now we have the one hostage that ran away from his captive in Gaza and walked away four days in Gaza Strip. And then innocent Palestinian civilians returned him to the Hamas. And this was just published today. I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's, but to, to, see, to see the lies in real time is, is, is very frustrating. Uh, you will remember that, I mean, you know, the, one of the reasons why the American generals gave the order, was it Truman who gave the order to, to take video footage of the concentration camps was the knowledge that he said. There will come a day when they say this didn't happen. So, and this day came much faster than we this would ever expect them. This day happened. This day had this day happened in hours. I mean, look at all these perverts online uh, going on about things like, um, you know, well, there weren't forty babies decapitated. Them, most of them still had their heads on, or were you know not entirely hacked off. And you think, really, that's where you want to argue. But there's a reason for that, of course, which is that the people who would do that, think or seem like people, find the mass murder of Jews on uh, October the 7th to be an encumbrance to their political goals, um, their political and moral goals, which is, for instance, to eradicate the state of Israel. And they find some of what Hamas did a bit much, but they want to get past it as soon as possible, or get around it. It's the same thing, by the way, that, I mean, there, you, there are bits of the far right in Europe still which play these dirty, ugly, dangerous games of trying to... You see it in vitiate elements in French politics, so trying to get around the collaboration. Why? Because they can't face having to walk straight through it and accept it. Because they're afraid of a second shall me up the door. I think No, I mean that's not the no I mean, that's not that's not the cause of the Vitiate fear. I mean uh, um the the second Charlie fear is simply from insulting Islam. But uh no, I mean I'm talking about the thing of trying to do the morally cowardly thing of going around the atrocity because you desire to get to the other side of the atrocity. You know, I well, mentioned that sort of quickly, but that's what that's what these people are trying to do with October the seventh. They must sense that something happened which is not entirely great, and they would like to get around it in order to get to the same goal. Well, I, no, I published a YouTube video about ChatGPT as being pro Hamas, and the idea was the ChatGPT is was proven to be politically correct. But sometimes, when reality itself is not politically correct, it's not. Doesn't have the tools to handle such a non politically correct reality. So, ChatGPT, because it was proven to be politically correct, we do exactly what you said. And you bet you've done that with it. Yes, yes. And I showed, you know, I said, listen, but there was a massacre. You, okay, but. And, and I, I show my conversation with ChatGPT. When you are trained to be politically correct, you can't handle. Realities which are way not politically correct. Yes, well, if you have a pre-programmed belief, by the way, there's this. Without getting into the critique, pinkerism, seeing pinkerism is, of course, is that it, like for Yarmism, is that it, um, it all works, but for the two biggest footnote corrections of all time, which is World War One, World War Two, yeah. The idea that we're getting better as a species. Enlightenment now, besides those two points. Except yes. two, yes. the two most catastrophic events. What happened between, uh, in Germany, between 1939 and 45, I'm going to ignore. Yes. Nevertheless, it was famics. By the way, one, I've heard David Berlinski has made this point, great mathematician. From yeah, are you welcome to come to meet, to meet him in person? In yes. He's great, you should do. Yes. He's an amazing mind. 
Uh, it, it is, uh, um, David, you pointed out that the, uh, the, the, the Pinker and Co. I mean, it seemed being a remarkable man. I think I, I'm not by any means dismissing all this work before I wouldn't dare. But uh, this particular issue, for instance, of the decline of murder as being a the, the, the decline of murder as being a a, 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 a measurement of human improvement. Um, the statistics only work if you take out mass murder. <laughs> <laughs> But but that would be like, for instance, that would be like only counting road deaths that are lower than two. Okay, I think you made your point. Yeah. You know, in members of court, I think that this is a correct thing of the book. In my best-selling book, The Madness of Crab. You... I can't remember the title of the new book, but yeah, well, it's, it's very close to it. You know. yes. I, I, I have the Kindle portion. So, uh... It, it says, it seems to me that both the feminism movement and the climate movement, it was never about that. When you hear, when you hear Greta say that she's pro-Hamas, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. When you say, when you hear that the feminist movement in, in Europe are ignoring Israeli girls being raped by Hamas, it was never about feminism. Mm. It was never about. Well, I would, I would, I would just, I would, I would refine that thought if I could, just slightly, which is to say, um, it started as being about that. It started as being about that um, for some people. I mean, the feminist movement for some people was, and it had lots to be said for it in its first and perhaps second wave. My uh, third wave was never about that. The third wave was never about that. That was about revolution. And there was always a, there's always an element in all of these social movements that, that, that wish to improve something. And I think the feminist movement did do a great deal of good. Um, but uh, there was always an element within it that wanted to, for instance, go past equal rights onto misandry, uh, man-hating. Uh, there were always parts of the feminist movement who wanted to hate men. That's why occasionally there's always an article or a new book. There's one by a French uh, young female author a few years ago about, you know, why we can do without men. There's a sort of every few years that always comes around. And of course, it's a ridiculous argument. And, and actually, it's, it's not about, as I say, it's not about um, feminism. It's about man-hating. And uh, my own view, uh, esoteric as it may be, is that I think the sexes should be able to get on. But anyway, um, it's the same thing with the green movement. I mean, there is a lot to be said for caring about the environment and, and, and not destroying the planet, absolutely. But there's, there's some inevitability that in second wave greenism, it's about revolutionaryism. And, and you can now, I mean, it's, you know, it's sad when people are completely predictable. But you can, you can predict with 100% accuracy some like Greta Thunberg was going to end up being a sort of anti-Israel activist. You can absolutely pro-Palestinian. What the hell does she know about the Middle East? Oh, come on. She never even went to school. There was this riot and one protester said, I, I wanted to be in a conference about climate, not about mass. And he was kicked out from, from the yeah, stage because basically this was about the resentment the yeah. anti-West. Yes, of course. Um, I don't know enough about Japanese culture. I'd like to know a lot more, but um, there's obviously a very rich and rich tradition. But I understand from a friend who, who does know a lot about Japanese culture um, that there was in um, the sort of pre-modern era in Japan when somebody was um, the, we would have said in the Middle Ages, the liege lord of somebody, um, if you had sworn your allegiance to a, to a military or other, you know, leader, and that leader was killed, um, you would um, stagger around the land looking for another person to attach yourself to. I would submit that people like Greta Thunberg, various climate activists, various Palestinian actresses in the West. Judith Butler. Yeah, I mean, the worst 
thinker and writer of modern times against really stiff competition. Um, people like that are, are hopelessly hollowed out individuals. They had sometimes a bit of a belief, and then they just roamed the land like empty souls looking for another person to put their allegiance onto. And there are some ready-made allegiances. You can join our fight to uh, attack the climate emergency. You know, whenever there's not another emergency, it's the climate emergency. Fight to stop the climate emergency, the climate crisis. Don't you agree when a climate crisis? Uh, and, and, and when that's cooled down a bit, they stagger around the land. Free, free Palestine. If free Palestine wasn't the thing, as I wrote recently, it would be 20 years ago, it would be free to bed. Um, and uh, so you, you can, these are lost souls looking for meaning. And in a way, one should pity them, except that they're so incredibly unpleasant. Yes. And the effects of their stupidity are so appalling. But again, those leaders are always against West. Yes. Well, that's the underlying thing. I mean, you mentioned Nietzsche's work, work on resentment and the genealogy of morals. And of course, as I often say, the Nietzsche in general, that, that book in particular has to be approached very carefully because, of course, it's also an anti-Christian text, of course, because of Nietzsche, Nietzsche's uh, special um, problems with Christianity, which he believed had introduced a sort of form of victimhood, of course. And, oh. uh, and, and, I, and I, I think he's a very stimulating, like all of Nietzsche's, a very stimulating uh, critique, and, and I don't entirely agree with it. But on resentment, um, he was one of the, the great uh, thinkers and prophets. A prophet, really, yes. Um, and uh, he did have, I mean, he was, um, I was reading Eche Homo recently, his, you know, the last book before he goes into madness. And I mean, it is, I read it first 25 years ago and I was, had no idea what it was about. And this time I was like, oh, Uh, I see. Uh, it's a terrifying work. I mean, terrifying not least in its simple, unbelievable searingness. One reason why I think the Palestinian issue has become a, a, a focal point for people of resentment is that it, it, it gives them a, a, a purpose to search for cosmic justice uh, through a misunderstanding of what's been happening in this region for the last 80 years and a lot lot before. And um, if you are told that a genocide is going on, that an ethnic cleansing, a holocaust is going on, a prison camp is going on, this is the biggest. Again, they don't, they don't notice the Pakistanis currently moving two million people forcibly out of Pakistan. Nobody cares. There are no cameras there. Nobody's videoing it. They don't care about Yemen, they don't care about Syria, they don't care about any of this. They don't care about Muslim lives per se. They, they, they mind about Israel defending itself. They mind about the Jewish state defending itself. And there are, a, there are many, I mean, there's too many uh, other psychological factors to, to go into in full, but there are many other factors. I mean, for instance, you know, if you're a European and you have some hereditary guilt for the Holocaust in whichever country you're in, You can, um, you can make yourself feel a bit better by saying the Israelis are currently doing the same thing as the Nazis, which therefore means that the Europeans weren't so bad. And there's a lot at play there. Yeah. I mean, and, and also, of course, don't forget the, that key one of the opportunity to hurt Jews, which it seems to me is what's going on, the very language that is chosen. You know, why do they say that Gaza is like the Warsaw Ghetto? I mean, there are so many things you could compare Gaza to in history. But why say the Warsaw Ghetto? Because you want to offend Jews, you want to upset Jews, you want to wound Jews, you want to hurt them. And so I think most of this is a knowing or unknowing effort to Because in, in, taunt Jews. In, in your opinion, and, and I heard your theory about, you know, there's a comparison to the Ghetto Warsaw, the Warsaw Ghetto. The idea is, but why... Do they want to insult Jews? Why is it? And maybe because Jew represents something that is, you know, the complete opposite of resentment. Uh, yes. And uh, I think that's, that's I question. think that's, I think there's something. Why the Jews? There I think there's very something. By Dennis Prager. Why the Jews? Okay. Mm -hmm. and the idea, what do we as the Jewish people represent 
that you know correlate with the West that the resentment movement is so anti. Well, I suppose some people can never quite console themselves to the fact that the Jewish people live after we killed Christ. Uh, maybe for some people, that's that's part of it. I think more um, there are more proximate issues these days. But I think that. Um, I mean, certainly within the Arab and Muslim world, you know, there is, as I've mentioned a number of, number of times recently, there is, and Bernard Lewis made, among others, made this point, but, you know, there is this, you know, Muslim hatred of Jews that comes from the religion, and it comes from the religion in part because, you know, if you are the people who've been given the allegedly last revelation from God, then why are things going so badly for you? You know, why is the GDP of most Muslim countries so terrible unless they happen to strike oil and even then it just goes to the top one percent um, and why when the Jews have this one slither of land which doesn't have any oil do they make such a success of it and so there are lots of causes of resentment within the Arab and Muslim mind I find however the sort of western latching on to that uh, to be um, very sinister and sad development. But to finish on a positive note, there's no reason why it's inevitable. Um, you know, much outside opinion on Israel changed in 1967 and 1973 when the Jews started winning. Uh, but plenty of leftists were on board the whole way with Israel. You know, all the people who visited kibbutzes and came and worked for six months on kibbutz in the 50s and 60s. That whole movement, largely leftist. And um, that movement sort of ebbed away because Israel was um, was winning, and had and had and had and when its neighbours tried to wipe it out, managed to stop them doing so. Uh, it's at the the Deborah Horn point, among others. You know, it's sort of it's okay as the Jews as long as the Jews are losing, or if they're dead. But the moment that they're winning, the moment they're successful, this is intolerable. Um, but that can be turned around. I honestly do believe it's, it's since it's gone so polluted in our lifetimes, we can unpollute it in our lifetimes as well. After four weeks in Israel, do you feel optimistic or more optimistic? What? Oh, I feel immensely optimistic about this country. And about this war? Um, the war is another question. We'll see what, what, what happened. Um, but... But I'm very optimistic about this country because having gone through one of the most divided periods, I think, in Israeli history in the last year, um, you know, you, you were attacked in the most bloody way and the country has come together and you can feel it everywhere. You know, I mean, if I go to visit bases, if I just speak to soldiers on the street, if I go to interview people, the sense of coming together of this disparate... Of this external enemy yes. that unifies you yes. as a Jew. I think, you know, the concept of you were murdered because you were a Jew, yes. you know, this, this horrible telephone. Yes, dad, they killed 10 Jews. Yeah? The idea that the concept of Judaism, yes, mm. you you are not Israeli, you are not part of the world, Gadi Taub, which is a mutual friend. Ah, yeah, yeah. Yes, wrote, you know, the... the uh, uh, about you know the people of the big world, you are not a people of the big world. Even even though that you have like a foreign passport, it doesn't mm. matter. They will see you always as a Jew. Mm. And this, I think, you know, many people say, ah, okay, it is real. All the stories yes. that I heard about the Holocaust, yes, they actually see me as different because I'm Jewish, and there yes. is nothing I can do about it to change. Well, of course. I mean, one of the things that I think the outside world doesn't yet understand enough about the atrocities of the 7th of October is the fact that some of the first victims were exactly the sort of people who were most pro-Palestinian, pro-Gazan, uh, believed in the idea of living side by side, helped them out. What the long-term consequences are for those people, those communities who were butchered, Knowing that, for instance, you know, not just you know the women who drove Palestinian children to hospital appointments and then were burned alive by Hamas, but the knowledge that you know the 
the kibbutz. He that... well. He said, well, was treated in Israel. He, he has something in his brain. Yes. And he was treated, I think, three times in Israel. Yes. Uh, I wish one of those operations had gone wrong. <laughs> but um, yes, uh, the, uh, the, the, it's, it's, but, uh, and, and just take that other one, you know, the, the, the thing we now know that, you know, that many of the uh, Hamas attackers, terrorists of the seventh, you know, their bodies alive or dead were found with maps of the kibbutz and with exactly which house was ha- which house. What does that mean? It means that these these poor families who believed in peace and and living together, who were who were hiring Palestinian workers to give them employment. And you remember, just before there was another negotiation about more Palestinians coming through the Eretz crossing in order to for more people to be working inside Israel. That is gone dead when we discovered. And the Israelis discovered that these people had acted as spies and given the information to Hamas so that they knew exactly who was in which house and how many people they could kill. The idea, that's one of the things I want the outside world to realize, because everyone in Israel realizes it. It, That that dream has died. And very few people, I think, in this country can possibly believe in that dream at the moment. And when the outside world looks in and says things like, that's why you've got to double down on the two-state solution, you, you just have to say, I'm sorry, this is like you telling me, you know, we've got to go back to Roman law and not build on it at all. Or, I mean, you know, all of that is gone. And not just in Gaza, but in the West Bank, it seems to me. The fact that the Palestinian Authority celebrated the massacres, the fact that just a couple of days ago uh, they were lynching other Palestinians. The civilians. I think, you know, the big, the big mistake that some Israelis are still making is a distinction between Hamas and Fatah and the innocent civilians. I think, you know, the idea of, and there was poll coming out recently, two days ago, about how many people in Gaza think what happened in October 7 was good. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it, it is it's, true. It's tricky it, to poll in Gaza. It's diminishing because yeah. Gaza is doing Nevertheless, most most of Gazan, yes, most of Gazan civilians in October seven were very happy. Were yeah. very extremely happy. Yeah, we've got the civil well, letting off fireworks in the West Bank as well. Definitely. I mean, um, so and the prime minister in in the West Bank say, "Wow, this is a great stuff." Yes, so I mean, that's meant to be the partner for peace. Like, I don't think so, um, but yes, I mean, I mean, I said to somebody from the Red Cross as on television program with the other day. She was talking about Gaza and the innocent civilians of Gaza versus the Hamas. And I said, well, what about Hamas civilians? I mean, what about the people who voted in Hamas? What about the people who collaborated with them all these years? I mean, this isn't to call for collective punishment, to just point out it's by, uh, that I, I really do think that although some lessons have been learned very fast inside this country, outside, I do fear that people are going to be dreaming defunct dreams and and trying to integrate totally dead delusions. And uh, if I had one message for the outside world, if we don't do that, no idea how preposterous that sounds now. You know, there is a great paradox, a very interesting paradox, that if a Muslim country wants to be liberal, it must be totalitarian. Because if there will be one-time elections, right. the Muslim brother will rise. Douglas Mary, thank you so much for your time. I always ask two final questions. One is, name a book that in, inspired or influenced you that you read that you have read in the last 10, 10, 10 years. You just mentioned Nietzsche Eko Omo. And but maybe there is another book that in your perspective, in your opinion, explain the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in the that you read and said, wow. Um the case for you no, no, I wouldn't I wouldn't say any one book on the conflict. Um okay. The book that made the most impression on me in the last 10 years was Vasily Grossman's Life and Fate, which I'd put off reading for a long time, partly because it's 900 pages long, but uh, it's really worth it. It goes, it goes through the dark heart of the 20th century from Stalingrad to Auschwitz and uh, back. And uh, Vasily Grossman, obviously one of the greatest writers of all time, and thank goodness they didn't manage to destroy his manuscript. We have it to read. Okay. And we have also your books, which all of them are fantastic. And there is any new book coming? Uh, I couldn't tell you that. I'd have to call you. Okay, okay. And one very less tiny bit question. Uh, My YouTube channel was about productivity in the the early beginnings. And you are 
extremely productive men. And let me take my shot. Do you have any productivity advice that you stick to or you say, you know, this truly helped me throughout my career? Well, I mentioned recently in a, in, a, in a column that a friend of mine in America said that he'd recently been given a drug by his doctor to deal with his irritability. And uh, I said, oh, yeah, we talked about it. And he said it helped him somewhat in the workplace. He said, do you want to try it? I said, absolutely not. I don't want to try an anti-irritability drug. I'd be out of work within a week. <laughs> um, uh, no, I... Um, I I don't know. I'm just very driven. I work very hard and um, pretty much all the time, but that's because that's what I love. Do you have like a reading ritual when you read a book? Do you summarize? Or the yeah, I, I, I have a terrible habit. Even when I'm reading for pleasure, I'm sort of always got my eye out for material. And um, do you summarize? No, I don't. I just highlight wildly and in really good books. I just, my copies have just lines down the side of every page. Um, but, uh, I mean, I, I, I it, it can't be stressed enough that, as you know, but as anyone young who's watching should know is that when you're starting out, whatever your gifts you have, you still have to work really hard, really hard. And at a certain point, if you work really hard, you can get there, but you have to pedal like hell when you're starting off and you should, and you shouldn't think the world owes you because... As a writer, I can tell you that uh, there are plenty of writers who think the world owes them a living, and they discover quite swiftly that it doesn't. So let me just quote Milton Friedman, the late Milton Friedman. No one deserves anything. Thanks, thanks God we don't get what we deserve. Quite. <laughs> Thank you so much, Douglas Miller. It's a great pleasure.